0: Los Angeles is the second biggest city in the US with 4 million people. And its importance as a major centre for film and TV production means that for ages people have been moving there, lured by the promise of better work and the prospect of Hollywood fame. Among them is sound engineer David Weinberg and his girlfriend, who upped sticks and moved cross-country from St Louis a few years back. Welcome to L.A. portrays their sometimes jarring adjustment to California life, introducing a cross-section of crazy stories and kooky characters that seem to live in a grey area, somewhere between fact and fiction. Petty criminals, adult entertainment workers, drum circle facilitators, Hollywood hopefuls and Hollywood has-beens, all human life is here.
1: From KCRW, this is Welcome to L.A., Episode 2, Paradise Motel. Back in the fall of 2008, I lucked into a job doing sound on a reality show. It was just for one day. I was living in New Orleans at the time, and a movie producer I knew was in a pinch. Her boom operator couldn't make it for a shoot. And she knew that i had experience working with recording equipment so she asked me if i could fill in the show was called out of a jam this was a few weeks before the 2008 presidential election the premise of the show was that america was on the verge of possibly electing the first black president and if we did surely everything in american life would be different how could it not be the central question posed by this show was what impact a black president would have on music, specifically jam bands. In order to answer this question, a bunch of prominent jam band musicians were flown to New Orleans where they would all live together in a house for a week. The house was next door to a music venue, and throughout the week, musicians would have access to the venue where on stage all their instruments were set up for spontaneous jam sessions inspired by the idea of a black president. And in between the jams, the musicians were interviewed. My job was to hold the boom mic for these interviews and to be at the ready to record the jam sessions because, as one of the producers told me, these guys could jam at any time. But there was no jamming the day I worked on Out of a Jam. After a few hours of interviews, the musicians got high and didn't come out of the house for the rest of the night. Out of a Jam never got released, And I don't know enough about jam bands to be able to say how the music changed under the Obama administration. But I can say that the one day I spent as a sound man planted a seed. When I moved to Los Angeles four years later, my plan was to get a job recording sound for film and television as a way to support myself while I pursued my dream of being a reporter. And after arriving in L.A., it only took me 10 days to get a job doing sound on a movie. Though maybe job isn't quite the right word, because it didn't pay. I was promised a producer credit and free food. I found the job on Craigslist. A director making a feature needed someone who had their own equipment to record sound for two days of shooting. I called the number on the listing and said that I had a tape recorder and a couple microphones. The director said he could provide a boom pole, and that was the extent of the interview. He told me to come to the Paradise Motel on Sunset Boulevard at 4.45 p.m. that Sunday. The Paradise has one of those big, classic neon signs advertising color TV in bright red light, the rooms arranged in an L-shape around the parking lot. From the moment I arrived, I could tell something was very wrong. I could smell it in the air. It turned out to be a dead cat rotting on the sidewalk. I walked past it, and was greeted by the director, Shane, who was much younger than I expected. He looked nervous. His eyes kept darting around suspiciously as he ushered me into one of the rooms and shut the door. There were guns and bags of white powder scattered around the room. A woman sat on the bed making adjustments on a small camera. Shane told me to sit tight. He had to go make a phone call. So I sat down and started getting out my recording equipment. The woman on the bed introduced herself. Her name was Manet. She told me she was the director of photography. Then she grabbed my microphone. Oh, yeah,
0: I love it.
1: (laughs) Shane came back into the room and explained why he was so nervous. He didn't have permission to film at the motel. The Paradise typically charges thousands of dollars per day to film on location. Shane had paid less than 100 the cost of a single room for one night. The motel manager was already suspicious. Lots of people had been coming and going from the room, and he told Shane that if someone so much as pulled out a cell phone to take a photo, that he'd be kicked out. I still had no idea what the movie was about, So I asked about the script. Shane told me there was no script. That he had an outline for how the story would go, but all the scenes would be improvised. I did come across a piece of paper that had one-paragraph summaries of each scene. I noticed one of the characters' names was Intellectual Hooker. A producer handed me a boom pole for my microphone, but no one had a cable long enough to go from the mic to the recorder, so the boom pole was useless. The director told me to just lay on the floor between the beds and point my mic as close as I could to the actor's mouth, so which so me, didn't seem ideal.
0: The- Hi. Hi. Nice Thanks to you. meet you.
1: Eventually, the actors showed up, a young woman named Mimi and the star of the film, Kevin Gage. His character's name in the movie, strangely, was also Kevin Gage. He plays a corrupt cop, deep in the throes of a downward spiral. Um, so, uh, Most of his scenes involved doing drugs, selling drugs, or assaulting prostitutes in motel rooms. The first scene we filmed was the opening shot of the movie. Shane explained Kevin Gage's character this way.
0: "Just big, kind of big size. You, you just know in an instant that life sucks for this guy. Like, he, his idea of life is that it's shit. And I just want to." Shane asks to Kevin...
1: That if there's a way for him to show without speaking that his life is total shit. And it's
0: just shit pouring out of you. If there's a way of just doing that somehow without saying or doing anything, I just... do it every morning. <laughs> so it shouldn't be that too.
1: And Kevin says, <laughs> you know, if you just I usually do it every morning. It shouldn't be that tough. It's a small moment that I don't think much of when it happens, but it's the first sign that as the day progresses... The lines between fiction and reality start to break down. Kevin Gage used to be famous. Not quite a household name, but he had memorable roles as villains in a few of the biggest Hollywood action movies of the mid 90s. He's been headbutted by Vin Diesel, shot in the chest by Robert De Niro. He double crossed Johnny Depp screamed at Demi Moore and was beaten to death by Nicolas Cage.
0: You know this gentleman, hunter? He's a regular. And I'm a regular. Huh? Regular hound dog. <laughs> this is a special occasion. If you don't mind, I could like spend a dance with my wife. Tell hey, you what, soldier. Why don't you go bite me and my buddies around?
1: Hey, In real life, he was married to Kelly Preston, before they split and she married John Travolta. But Kevin Gage's life as he knew it came crashing down in 2003 when he was sentenced to 3 years and 5 months in a federal prison. It's hard to pinpoint the moment when it all began to unravel for Kevin Gage. But I suppose you could trace it all back to Mary
0: Magdalene. Set you up, don't you? Some of episode two called Paradise Motel from KCRW's Welcome to LA, presented by David Weinberg.